0: Tom McLaughlin is the writer and director of the horror films One Dark Night and Friday the 13th Part 6 Jason Lives, as well as the comedy Date with an Angel. He directed the TV movie Sometimes They Come Back, which was based on a story by Stephen King. In addition to writing and directing, Tom is the lead singer of the heavy metal band The Sloths.
1: Tom, thank you for taking the time to talk with me today. Yeah, I'm glad to be here and glad to know we're neighbors, basically. You know, I'm in Burbank and you're in Hollywood. So there we go. I know that there's a book all about your life. It's called The
0: Strange Idea of Entertainment Conversations with Tom McLaughlin. And it's by Joseph Madry. And that tells your backstory
1: from birth
0: all the way up until 2014. Can you? Give us a little bit of information about the story of how you started directing films.
1: Well, first off, I think you got to go buy the damn book. (laughs) (laughs) Not not that we're going to make any money. That's the one thing with these things. When you would make something that's for a very specialized audience, it tends to just be a cool thing to have. And anybody's interested, you know, kind of gets it from soup to, to soup and nuts to, you know, death. I mean, it's everything that kind of, he had, Joe had in his head about how does a filmmaker do as many different weird things as I did and still have this, you know, passion that you want to make films more than anything else. Um, but it really kind of, you know, came out of my father, you know, who was a USC film student. And, um, you know, I kind of ad- adopted his dream uh, because he couldn't quite, in those days, trying to break in in the 50s, you know, as a young sort of independent filmmaker, you know, the best thing you could do is shoot, you know, news footage, you know, the 60 millimeter news footage that, you know, it was those days, you know, you're probably too young to know, but, you know, in the, on the channels, they would always say news at 11. And it's like, why the hell do they have news on at 11? Only time, well, it took that long to process the film, you know, when they got it in to the studio and stuff. So, you know, his dream was very squashed by that, but he bought a house and right next to MGM backlot and I got his camera and into the back lot at seven, I went and started shooting things on the weekend with my friends. So 16, we couldn't afford, but eight millimeter we could. So we got eight millimeter camera and and continued on our quest. Okay.
0: I wanna fast forward to when you started writing uh, One Dark Night. It's about a young girl who spends a night in a mausoleum as part of an initiation into a club that's called The Sisters. And there is a Blu-ray disc available from MVD Rewind Collection. I wanted to ask you, what do you remember about the production of that film?
1: Well, um, so many things. I mean, it was my first film. I had been wanting this for so long. Nobody wanted the script, purely because it wasn't a slasher movie. I was taking it around in in the late 70s and, you know it was like you know get me something with girls uh a knife some weapon and a forest or some isolated area so this whole gothic horror film i wanted to do was not of of interest so it really took a lot of banging on doors and all that to try to finally get somebody and ironically and this is for all you filmmakers out there some of the least expected things can happen and in this case there was a group of Mormon businessmen who needed to lose a million dollars by the end of the year, so they had, they had to come up with something that they could say, you know, didn't work, or they closed the company after they did it. And I, you know, it was a guess, kind of kismet, our special effects guy had had somebody on his team who was Mormon. He knew about this thing. Went up, went up to Provo showed him this, this little sort of slideshow thing that we had with the script. He said, you know, could you be ready to shoot in three weeks from now? And I said, yep, because I had storyboarded everything by that point, having waited and waited. So finally, you know, comes today. I'm on that set kind of looking around going, I can't believe we finally got here. And uh, I sort of feel that every time I make a movie and you know, I've gone up to like 43, 42, 43 films now, you know, feature-length films. Uh, that either were shown in theaters or obviously, you know, in TV things, then now streaming and all the rest of that, all the different homes they end up at. Um, But every film is like, when they step on the set, it's like, I, this is a very blessed thing to get a chance at, you know, to, to put a vision on the screen and freeze it, you know, for hopefully all time. And that people if you read the book, what Joe did is he went through all my movies and then went through my personal life during those times and saw where things sort of, you know, crossed over. Um, I was raising teenagers at a time I was doing lifetime teen movies. So dialogue between my daughter and my wife was perfect to just take, you know, and give, you know, to the the actors and say, say it like this. And you know, it's like, yeah, I like this. And because I said, well, it's very real. This is kind of what happens you know, in those situations. So all the way down the line, you know, the horror movies, all of that all seemed to coincide with something. And uh, a lot of things kind of repeated from film to film. My use of a red Mustang uh, was the car that me and Chris Mancini, who was my first band, drove to Monterey Pop for the Monterey Pop Festival. So I had that thing of, where you know, I'm going and now I'm going to be reborn wanting to be a rock and roll star after seeing Jimi Hendrix and oh Otis Redding. And I mean, just so many people that were huge influences. And um, The Who, of course, that really was a big influence. So all of these things all kind of come together. And my, like even in Friday, I was in a band, uh, The Sloss, back in the 60s. One of the bands we would, play with was a band called The Naz. The lead singer was a guy named Vincent, knew he was from Texas, talked to him a number of times backstage, talked to him at Frank Zappa's house, and years later, he became Alice Cooper. So, Friday the 13th had a, you know, soundtrack by Alice Cooper, not that I've even seen him. The last time I saw Alice was 1964, and then everything oh. else you know, just this, the, the, you know, the, the the representatives, you know, the agents, the record label, all the rest of that stuff. I really wanted to do the music video, but they already had somebody, um, you know, I guess that they always used. So, you know, we keep, you know, we get these things through fans where it's like, all right, Alice is going to be at this and this. Are you going to be at that one? No, I've got another one I'm doing, the conventions. And one of these days, because in the band, I do sing Man Behind the Mask and oh. I'm able to sing it very close to you know alice's voice he's got a very unique voice but i've also got a very nasally kind of you know you're with your baby you know and and put that kind of edge to it so i guess he said the one fan well one of these days i'm going to get him up on stage we'll do it together so big big bucket list thing you know hopefully will happen and the other thing i wanted
0: to talk about for one dark night was i know you were influenced by the hammer horror films Yep. And Edgar Allan Poe stories. It had a very gothic feel to it. And yep. I grew up Catholic also. So it was yep. nice to see the imagery and hear the prayers yep. in the film. Yeah.
1: Yeah. You can take the boy out of the church, but you can't take the church out of the boy. Right. So even even to this day I still, you know, practice Catholicism and that has been a result of bouncing around with all these different things, particularly in the 60s. You know, oh, the Beatles are doing transcendental meditation. Okay, put down the joints, put down the drugs. Okay, we're, we're going to meditate now, you know, and then you get involved with some girl and she's in Scientology or something. So let me check that out. Oh, don't want to do that. Okay, I'll move on to the next thing. <laughs> and It all kind of came back around to what my mother wanted more than anything else was for, you know, her firstborn to be a priest. And I've got this great picture from sometimes they come back. Of it of me in the priest's outfit doing the funeral. Um, but I ended up cutting it out of my own film because the film was too long. And I thought, this is not an exciting scene. There's no conflict. It's just showing the funeral, you know, which was in the script. So that was one mm-hmm. of those things when I got that picture, I sent it to her and I go, Well, there you go. <laughs> so that was what you wanted. My dad wanted me in in uh, you know, to do anything in film, you know, because that's where his heart was. So let's go ahead and focus
0: on uh, Friday the 13th now. Okay. Uh, Part six, Jason Lives. Jason is brought back from the dead, obviously, um, when he's unburied and struck by lightning. Right. I wanted to ask you, what were some of the challenges that you had when you were writing and directing that film? I know that you wrote it at Hollywood Forever Cemetery, but then what took place from that point forward?
1: Well, it was, you know, First off, they wanted a treatment. You know, what is the script that you want to make? Because Paramount Frank Mancuso Jr.'s only marching orders, one thing, bring back Jason from the dead. I don't care how you do it, just make it so an audience will get it. So I thought to me as a, you know, universal horror fan as well, there's only one way to bring somebody back from the dead, whether they're pieced together or whatever is lightning. So now I've got a man that's in a coffin, you know, six feet under, How the hell am I going to get lightning into that thing, you know, with being somewhat believable? I guess you probably could hit the ground with lightning, but I wanted some sort of conflict and wanted to make use of Tommy, you know, who's now grown up from like the previous movie. So, you know, you just start putting the pieces together, you know, and he's got to have a girlfriend, you know, and she to me, she's got to be witty and sharp. I wanted it to have comedy, you know, as much comedy as I could put in without making fun of Jason. But just little asides and, you know, breaking the fourth wall for some folks have a strange idea of entertainment. And, you know, which ended up being, Joe picked that as the title of my book. And it sort of fits in because of all the weird ass shit I've done over the years. You know, it always comes back to one thing, you know, entertainment. Did it entertain you? Did it hold your attention? So once we got the green light based on the script, it was just like you know, they just approved it and I, you know, went out to shoot it. And basically I had, you know, this much of a budget and we had a a production manager that made sure that we (laughs) stayed on that budget by cutting out crane shots that, you know, I had planned. It's like, oh, where is that crane? Geez. I'm sorry, Tom. You know, it's like, great. get me a ladder, you know, get me a steadicam. We're going to build something that'll feel like that. And and it's like, I was always sort of trying to get past you know, the, no, we can't afford that. So at the end of the day, you know, he brought the film in under budget. He got a big uh, bonus. So that was his motivation. And Frank wanted three more kills. So so here in uh, Los Angeles, we went up to Bronson Park, where Bronson Bronson Caves are, and shot the, the death of the caretaker and the two, you know, kids out there, teenagers out there. So, you know, for some reason, I was like, "Frank, I got thirteen kills. Isn't that enough?" He goes, eh, I just felt after we you know had this screening for an audience." who were so drunk, so stoned, who were out in the sun in front of Paramount for eight hours, and they came in and it was just like somebody on a roller coaster. I mean, from the first frame, they were screaming, yelling, talking to the screen, all this stuff. I couldn't hear anything. I couldn't hear any of the dialogue. It's like, hear the music. So I didn't know if the film worked or, or what, but Frank went, it worked. It was great. They loved it. You know, they tell you, they would have walked out if you, you know, if you didn't hit it out of the park. I just want three more kills. So that's kind of what you know. I gave him, you know, what he wanted because he was giving me everything, you know, which was just amazing.
0: And I really like Jason Lives because it has comedy, it has the rock and roll music from Alice Cooper, and it has likable characters. Can you talk about the casting for characters such as uh, Jennifer Cook and Tom
1: Fridley? Yeah. Well, Frank is always sort of like Hitchcock, very insistent on uh, lead girls got to be blonde, you know? <laughs> so it's sort of limited, you know, all right. So I'm sorry for the br- brunettes, but I guess if I really like somebody, I could put a blonde wig on them, you know, and maybe Frank wouldn't know the difference. But Jennifer had come in. I knew nothing about her or her past. She just came in and she sparkled. And there are certain people that have that X chromosome that they just immediately like them. They read, you know, read the material. They got the sarcastic humor that that's very 30s, 40s comedies, which I, I really am a huge fan. You know, somebody says, well, Who's your mentor? I'd say Frank Capra. You know and it's like and you make a Jason movie I said watch it you'll see a lot of touches with the characters and the you know the wise guy one-liners and things that all come from those movies of Howard Hawks and, and Capra and all those guys from that, that period so she could do it Tom Matthews came in we couldn't use John Shepard because of God knows what exactly the real reason was but I was told he went Into religion, and he didn't want to do one of these. And somebody else says, No, his agent wanted too much money. So, no, that's more typical Hollywood. But uh, Tom came in, and he was, you know, good looking, could be romantic, funny, all the things. And somehow that wonderful thing of chemistry occurred between them. And then all the other casts, you just, you know, people come in and you go, I like this person. And that was a huge thing for me. They have to be likable. Something I learned from Chaplin and and, and from his interviews, where he goes, You know, if they like the characters, they're going to like or love the movie because they're invested. I can identify with that person. I don't, don't, you know, I didn't want people to be cheering when somebody got killed. And that's what was happening with most of the slasher movies. The bloodier, the gorier, whatever they could get away with, they did. I was trying to make every kill unimitatable. You know you can't take somebody's head and go like that and take it off you know i mean this, jason now had this superpower which i thought the fans were going to be pissed at and yet every year when they do the you know the 10 best or whatever you know we're either one or two you know in that it's stuck i and i think for me personally it's because i tried to make a movie and not a slasher movie and by that i mean jason had an agenda tommy had an agenda who's going to win? That's the conflict. And then he had the girl, she could be in jeopardy. She ends up being not only the final girl, but she's the one that actually stops Jason, you know, which again, he did everything he could. And then it's a woman comes along and goes, no, I'm swimming out there. (laughs) I'm not going to take care of it. Um, the kids, they never had kids before. I said, we got to have kids, but I didn't know if, if we could shoot late at night, but all the parents were there social worker. They go, yeah, they're fine. You know, so Six in the morning, these kids, you know, were eating the sugar off the craft service tables and were, you know, ready to go. And all really, really sweet, wonderful kids. I didn't have, you know, any bad eggs with anybody in this cast. Um, So it was just, you know, one of those things where everything comes together. 37 years later, we are still friends. I mean, friends to the degree that we, you know, text each other on a weekly basis. We see each other at the conventions. It's when I called everybody and said, we're going to do a screening at the Los Feliz Theater in Hollywood, everybody was in town, came. And and then CJ Graham, who played Jason, you know, had had, you know, a live stream come in so he could talk to people as well. But, you know, for something that's 37 years old, you know, you just figure it's a forgotten thing. But every generation seems to gravitate to this thing. And I, I, it's like, am I responsible? Well, I was the one that got the lightning bolt to figure it out, but you know somehow God stepped in and said, okay, do this and do that. I don't know. I mean, as, as I said, I was terrified the fans were not going to like it uh, because of all the unusual things I put to it.
0: And there's a couple of references in there that I really liked. One of them was a reference to classic Hollywood. There was a store in the film, and it was called Karloff's General Merchandise, a
1: reference yeah. to Boris Karloff. Exactly. It was Frankenstein. Frankenstein. And that, yeah, that was my way of going, yes, I stole from Frankenstein. That's what that is. I'll call myself out on it right there. You know, that reference was to really say, yeah, it was a tribute to that. Um, In the same way it's Carpenter Boulevard and and Cuttingham Road and, you know, tried to put as many things in there. You know, one of my best friends is is the filmmaker Mick Garris, so Sheriff Garris. So, you know, lots of things just that sort of like, you know, I want to kind of, you know, nod to people that either inspired or are friends. And there was one I wanted to ask you about. There's a character that gets killed in
0: a, in a pool of a puddle of water. And then there's a prop credit card, American Express card, but it actually says American excess. Was that your idea,
1: Tom? <laughs> yes. Uh, um, I, I was trying to set up things that the somebody in the audience would give me the punchline and it worked pretty consistently because in those days there was a commercial that had run for years where you know they got some celebrity or some good-looking person and you know they say American Express don't leave home without it and everybody knew that so you know I knew if I hung on that card you know she offered him money she offered him credit cards and stuff you know, got killed anyway. And the last thing you see is the money sinks, and yet the American Express, um, you know, floats. And without question, on every screening, usually some guy in the back, don't talking about it. Whole audience would laugh. And he feels like, boy, I'm going to get laid tonight. Boy, I mean, this is great. <laughs> I mean, and I thought that's great that the audience actually provides some of the laughs. And I've done that in One Dark Night as well as that, and I don't think I, I think I stopped with the horror movies uh, with, after I did uh, uh date with an angel. Um, sometimes they come back, yes, was for CBS, but also had to shoot it, you know, for CinemaScope because it was a movie overseas as well, that D- uh, Dino De Laurentiis's brother, I guess, or cousin, you know, was releasing. So it did have like two different markets, you know, the European market, and then The American was a TV movie.
0: And and now that we're talking about Dino De Laurentiis, I want to talk about Date with an Angel. Mm -hmm. That one is also available on Blu-ray Disc. It's from Kino Lorber, and you do a great commentary, very insightful. I wanted to ask you, um, what inspired you to write that story? I know you said you wrote it in the early 70s. Yeah. Um,
1: When I was in Paris, two things happened that influenced these movies. One was I went down into the catacombs. And in those days, you got a candle and you go down, I don't know how many stories in this spiral thing. And suddenly you're surrounded by skulls and, and bones from, I don't know how many years of cemeteries that were dug up and put them all down in there. So you're with this group. And I decided because of my love of horror, I'm gonna let the group go on and I'm gonna be by myself, you know? (laughs) Which again, sort of is what happened with Meg Tilly, you know, in that movie, in One Dark Night, she was in this thing, wall to wall, dead people. So it's like, you're sort of safe, you think, except I had to figure out some way to have these crypts open up and the coffins slide out under some sort of power. So that was another thing I was very fascinated with was psychic vampirism. You know that ability to be around certain people that I'm sure every all you guys have had somebody that they're talking and they're doing it. And when they walk away, you're like, oh, you know, and it wasn't just listening. It's like they zapped your energy and they just kept going with this energy. So I thought that was a really interesting thing. If you could zap it all the way out, <laughs> you get power and then you can levitate things and all that. So there was that kind of connection to it. Then Angel statues were everywhere in Paris, you know, when I was there. So I kept seeing these winged angels. And of course, growing up Catholic, you know, there's a classic photo of an angel helping two little kids over a broken bridge. Um, and that was always the something that stuck with me, that you're always going to be protected by your guardian angel. And I thought, you know, I got to do a comic spin with it. Uh, you know, in those days, I was talking with Frank Capra, uh, he you know, I, I bounced it off of him. He said, that's great. Then I made, wrote a script. He gave me some notes, and then he saw the movie and called it a wonderful thing. I loved it. Dino, unfortunately, didn't take his quote and put it on the thing because he said, who's going to know who a Frank Capra is? You know, you've got to put somebody that knows that's who that picture. I said, this is Frank Capra." you kidding me? I said, if I did a Western and John Ford said it was a great Western, you wouldn't put it on? Nah, no. Nah. <laughs> So that was the end of that little story with Frank there, because I, I didn't know if he would like it or not like it, but dear, dear man, and uh, so influential and in terms of movies are a people-to-people people art. You know, if you connect with those people, the audience connects with them, it stays, and It's a Wonderful Life plays every year. And what do you remember about working
0: with Michael Knight, uh, Phoebe Cates, and Emmanuel Bayart? yeah
1: Emmanuel was the most difficult role to cast this is going to sound like bullshit but this is absolute truth guys I saw over 6,000 girls you know basically unknowns because I wanted you to discover this angel I didn't want it to be somebody you know recognizable and I mean but in the in that period Uma Thurman came in um what's the English actress uh the she was married to uh Tim Burton Um, oh helena bonham carter yeah she came in Read for it i had so many you know the x-files star uh, now i'm losing my trivia um david david dukevny yes he read so these are all again unknowns that were coming but the big thing was finding the angel and dino had the money to send me to Italy, to send me to France, to send me to England, you know, to send me to Montreal. You know, I just bounced all over and then we would have these open calls in Los Angeles at his office. So hundreds and hundreds of girls lined up, you know, to come in. In the back of my mind, years before, I thought, what a great way to find the, the girl of my life. I'll look at all these people, I'll pick one, they'll be my angel and that it stays. Well, by the time a date with an angel got made, I was married and she had a baby coming. So, so much for that, you know, and, and the story. Um, but that was the thing that just, i had this thing in my head that she had to speak with her eyes. You know, there had to be some sort of way she communicated silently because her voice was going to be this kind of chimey so-and-so. Now, again, folks, this was way before Splash. When Splash came out, critically, that's where I got my ass kicked. Oh, here comes another Splash imitation like Mannequin. It's like, no. E.T. hadn't come out yet when I was pitching the Date with an Angel around Hollywood. But nobody got it. Nobody wanted to do a movie about a fantasy figure like that. Um, So it was, you know, the Mermaid film. Somebody else was trying to remake Mr. Peabody and the Mermaid, and they weren't getting anywhere. So by the time I got it made, Splash had already come and gone, and It's a great, great movie. I love that movie. I can come into it at any point. You know, he did such a great job, everybody on that film. And Day with an Angel was supposed to be less comic and more romantic, more fantasy romantic with a little bit of humor. But my first cut was three hours long. So (laughs) ended up for pacing, had to start taking out some of the long romantic scenes. And what we were left with was a lot of you know the comic stuff which was fine but it kind of took it away from what i really wanted to speak to the heart about because like that last scene where she embraces him and stuff i thought what a way to go I mean, you know and the whole irony that she's coming to take him she breaks her wing now he's taking care of her and once she gets cured she's going to take him so you know there was that that bottom line that i wanted to hit then dino wanted rock and roll music wanted present things, you know, the, hack, the fact that Stevie Winwood, you know, basically gave us, you know, finer things. And, you know, of course I had to, you know, go for, um, you know, any of the old rock and roll, you know, whop, bop, boop, boop, wham, bam, bam, boom, tutti free because I wanted to have that kind of timeless vibe about it. Um, and that's, I talk about that probably more than anything else is the music on the, on that DVD that you mentioned, um, or Blu-ray, I'm sorry. So yeah, it was one of those things where I wanted it to be one way. It came out different. I was grateful I got to make it. I've always said, this is the film kind of I wanted to be remembered by in a way that I didn't really know why exactly. And then one thing happened, a magician from the Magic Castle. I was in the audience. After the show, he came out because he knew one of the other magicians who knew me and said I need to talk to you for a second. I go, okay. My mother loves, you know, holding my hand. You know, my mother loves this movie more than anything. She makes us watch it every Thanksgiving, every Christmas, every Easter. <laughs> I said, what about 4th of July? I think she probably did, you know. So, she, he said, do you have anything like that? Well, I've got pictures. I got, you know, I did everything I could to send it to her. And I didn't see the guy for a long time. And when I finally saw him again at the Magic Castle, I said, how's your mom? She said, well, she passed. But she was surrounded by all those things that you gave her, all those things. And before she died in bed with us all around, she looked up and she just smiled. And he said, I don't know. But as far as we're concerned, she was looking at some form of Emanuel Bayard as that angel, because that's what she so gravitated to and i went that's why i made this movie you know so you know all it takes to me is one person that it really made a huge impact oh that doesn't mean box office or anything which is what they judge things by but to me it's can you touch somebody can you make it something special in their life
0: and now that we've talked about date with an angel i want to fast forward to 2019 Mm -hmm. where you wrote a screenplay for a new friday the 13th film Jason Never Dies. And I know that production on that is delayed or has not started because of the rights issues. Yeah. It's a sequel to your film, Friday Part right. 6. And it takes place 13 years later in winter. And it has an all-female cast except for Jason. What else can you tell us about this project?
1: It's been a long road with that one. I'll tell you, Stephen, it's like it was It was looking impossible. And at a certain point, it the rights looked like they were going to go to Victor Miller, who was the writer of the original Friday the thirteenth. And I thought, okay, Sean is going to have the the adult Jason with the mask. And Victor can't have that. All he could have was a prequel, you know, uh, or a remake of the original film. Um after that, I don't know how he would be able to still use the title or all that, you know, all that stuff is still, still being figured out in some way. Um, So I met this man, James Sweet, who did um, Jason's Jason has risen. Uh, which is a film fan not fan fan film and I was impressed as I am with a lot of those ones and I always find a way to get in touch with the filmmaker and say you know I loved what you did with this this was great you know keep going and I love that whole era which could be done now because now they kind of know where the rights are where filmmakers were the fans the fans paid for it. The fans made the movies. They want the ones that wanted to be filmmakers would get together. And there was something that I don't think in the history of filmmaking there was ever where, okay, there's a franchise. people love this, so we're going to target those people and we're going to make, you know, a Jason movie that we want to see. It's amazing. And some of them, you know, how many millions of hits they've had, uh, you know, it's it's incredible. They can't make any money off of it. That's the big catch you know, you can't sell stuff and keep the money. You've got to give it to charity or show that it went into the movie. So with James, we got talking and he said something about, you know, I, I would love to do a movie where it starts with Jason's birth. And I went, yeah, that could be cool. That's a cool idea. And then that night I went, wait a minute. What about, you know, Pamela Voorhees' is this serial killer in the 40s, late 40s, because Jason was born in 46, and take it all the way up to 56 when mom and little Jason goes into the camp. All that dead zone area there, what was going on? We started coming up with stuff. We were doing storyboards. We were putting this thing together called the Diary of Pamela Voorhees. And I love the device that you you hear her thoughts. You hear somebody go from a little off a very you know psychopath, you know, and that was going to be the thing. And I thought we'll get this to Victor. So what happened was I couldn't get a hold of Victor. Nobody would take anything that had anything to do with the Friday the Thirteenth. I even called Victor at home, and he goes, "Tom, I cannot talk to you about this. I just can't." You know, my lawyers said, "I go, no, I understand it, and I'm sorry to call you at home, but I we feel this much passion. I have another one that." I don't know if Sean would ever do it if he got the right. So, you know, I kind of kept Jason Never Lives, you know, in the wings there, started pushing that until, was it last Halloween? No, t- two Halloweens ago, you know, Daily Variety, you know, Crystal Lake you know, is coming. And it's all that time period into Friday the 13th and on until Jason goes into outer space. And I was like, okay, all right. But it can only be on television. They can't make a feature film out of all that. So Jason, you know, has risen again. <laughs> Jason never dies. Uh, of which I'm trying to see who would make the feature version of this. You know, who has the passion? But there are so many strings attached. You got to get Victor's approval, just like Victor's got to get Sean Cunningham's approval to do these things. And what do you think they're going to do to each other? It's the same thing they've been doing for nine years, with heavy heavy-duty lawyers. So I hate to say this to you guys, but it's not about pleasing the fans. It's about money. It's about who's going to get how much. You, you get a dollar more. Nope. Then I want two dollars. It's so lame, so stupid, so commerce, which is what unfortunately things these things become. I didn't make a movie to do it by the rules that had come before. It was like, how can I do something different that would bring to it? And the filmmakers who do that, to me, I applaud them because it's it's a risk. It's a huge risk. You know, my Jason Never Dies is also in the snow, you know, but I mean, we're talking like the thing, John Carpenter's the thing kind of snow where it's like up here and you're these girls are locked in. Catholic high school girls, by the way, um, and a nun, Irish nun. She's sort of the antagonist until Jason, you know, comes into the scene. But it was, again, kind of, I didn't want to take him to Venus or take him to Los Angeles or whatever. Keep it there. Just change up that this is, you know, winter instead of, you know, a summer camp. And have it be a retreat instead of a summer camp because those are all over the place, and you know, in places. So I tried to put, you know, these elements to it. And it's just a matter of time. Or I put together a campaign where I get all the fans to say, make his movie, make his movie. And I hear this constantly from people that heard like what you've heard about it. Um, And I didn't want to release that for the longest time because I figured one of the fan films is going to grab it and run with it. And ironically, you know, um, uh, Never Hike in the Snow, you know, we had lunch together after my announcement, you know, came out. And he goes, I'm doing a thing with Jason in the Snow too. I said, well, tell me about it. I'll tell you a little about mine. I said, these are so different. And uh, Vincent, Vincent, Vincente, he was doing it in a completely different way. And unfortunately he was shooting an area where the snow wouldn't stay very long. So he ended up with just pads of it. I said, mine is going to cost a lot more because we're going to have to go in the studio. I can't leave people freezing, you know, night after night, you know, but We have to do a lot of it in the real, you know, the real location and then go into a soundstage and recreate, you know, what little we would see out the window at night with Snowfall. So, you know, but it's not something that you can do for $50,000 or $100,000 that the fan films are doing. It's going to need a studio and it's going to need, you know, real, you know, let's see what he can do with it. But nowadays these movies are made so much by committee so it becomes what I was so blessed to get with my Jason lives. Let him make the movie he wants to make. You know, that doesn't quite exist. Quentin probably is it. You would think Spielberg, probably, because he doesn't do previews. So nobody can say, well, the audience didn't like it. So other than them, you know, and probably Nolan, I, I would think he's he's gained that kind of respect that they're not gonna, you know, mess with his vision. And by you know, leaving it up to the filmmaker, they're gonna spend whatever they can, but there's gonna be obviously limitations. When you do takes now, you can let that digital camera run and run and you can keep doing whatever you want in terms of, okay, go back to the first positions, we're gonna go again and try to keep the energy going. You know? So it's a very different thing. There's a, I gotta tell you one thing, I was supposed to do the Exorcist prequel. I was on the movie for two years at Warner Brothers, um, with Morgan Creek, and the idea was to show how, uh, Father Karras, uh, not Father Karras, Father, uh, what's his name? Oh, the, the, the older priest, Father Marin, how Father Marin's first encounter with the devil was like, and I wanted to shoot a very godfather-like in the 40s, of it not looked like the other ones and stuff. Two years, I was on it, when the script came in it just didn't work and I won't tell you all the other things that happened until they finally ended up making two of them uh, you know and I just had signed a gag order I wouldn't talk about anything I contributed but you know there was a point when they were showing the movie and in the original I'm sorry not the original but the the, the one that uh, Peter Blatty made um, which was The Exorcist 3 the movie was the book some secretary of one of the producers went you know how can you call it an exorcism movie and you don't have an exorcism and i was like yeah she's right so call up william peter blatty you know like you have to write an exorcism. no i'm not going to write one big fight back and forth you know money so and you know up till the time when i saw him last before he passed on he hated that that he had to put that in but that's how crazy it can get where somebody says something and they go that's the idea okay and it's coming from upstairs and you know it's like do you want to make the movie or do we move on and get another director because i think they even threatened him with that you don't want to direct that sequence we'll get somebody else so it's it's tough it's a, it's a it's a much more difficult thing to make these big studio movies Unless you're dealing with a franchise like Marvel or d c, and even those are not doing like they used to do. You know, yeah, we didn't make a trillion dollars on this. We only made a billion. When are we going to get to a trillion? You know, and it's it is that corporate kind of thinking. You know the product is whatever the suckers will come for, so Tom, is your Jason Never dies script basically the next in line? If there was a Friday film made, it would be yours. Yeah. No, unfortunately not, Uh, uh, because it's really a question now. I talked to Sean Cunningham. He was very depressed, needless to say, because it's like, Tom, if it was up to me, that's one thing. It's not up to me anymore. There's all these other people involved. You know, send me the script and I'll read it and we can see what happens. But, you know, Crystal Lake, basically, they're grabbing up everything and they've got Huge muscle, you know, with, with NBC. I think Universal has jumped in there. I could be wrong on that. Um, but it, it's, they're spending, I think I heard this right, $3 million per episode. Now, that seems like a lot, you know, certainly for those of us who, I made that whole Jason lives with that amount of money. Um, but when you think about, you know, True Detective and uh, Westworld series, those were $11 million an episode because they were going so big and the Star Trek recent Star Trek stuff was 15 million per episode and again this is a franchise they know they got people that still want to see it so they they do have a lot of money to make this and carry it i think he's got a guaranteed three seasons or something with this but it has to stay on you know the the tv screen in some way shape or form but like anything else to me Company gets bought out, somebody else comes in. How do we change that? You know, just pay this month. Okay, here you go. It's just nothing is what it seems, you know. And so you all you can do is have a vision, do the best you can to get it to the screen. If it ends up being the small screen, you know, are you gonna take it? Yeah, probably. But do I wanna see this in a the theater with people responding to it? Of course. You know, and thank God after COVID, when we thought that's the end of it, it is coming back and people are going to see the Terrifier, you know, with that no rating. Couldn't give that sucker a rating because he was so extreme. But I applauded the guy, you know, I shook his hand at one of the conventions. I said, you know, you did what no one else could do before, you know, and he's going on to his third one now. So, you know, that's a great indie attitude and, you know, work under the radar until they discover you and then bang, you know, now they want him, you know, for bigger things.
0: Can you talk about Specifically, some of your early influences in the
1: horror genre. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, the Universal monsters—Frankenstein, Dracula, the Mummy—obviously, you know, Wolfman. All of those ones. Why? Because the, the the rights were so cheap that all the stations could buy them for next to nothing. And there's a station out here, Channel Nine, um, KHJ. And we had a radio station and a TV thing. And when they got a film, like Frankenstein, they'd run it, you know, the million dollar movie or whatever it was called. Monday at nine o'clock, Tuesday at nine o'clock, Wednesday at nine o'clock, Thursday. So guess what this kid was doing every night. No, I'm I'm going to bed, mom. Just just give me a minute. So by Saturday, I had all the dialogue memorized. And these guys were friends. I mean, monsters were the way most kids feel. It's like, they don't like people don't like me you know I'm, I'm misunderstood all the things that are basic rules you know that you've got to put you know in a lot of these type type movies and so that was kind of the first kind of big thing when I started going to school I would you know ditch school get on a bus go out to Santa Monica where there was Hammer horror films there was the Corman horror films that would start at noon and there I sat, you know, afraid that truant officer or somebody was going to catch me, um, you know, with two other people in the theater, but got to see all those. And they were twice as exciting because you weren't supposed to be there. You're supposed to be in school right now. So once all, you, you know, you got back on the bus and got home, you know, now it's like, okay, I got to come up with a note. <laughs> some my mother, somehow, some way that the nuns will buy. Um, but that was, again, a part of that sort of exciting, crazy thing what what also happened that was incredibly traumatic is when i was 11 my mother had a mental breakdown and the mother that i knew for 11 years was somebody else altogether and was put into an institution and on the weekends we would go down you know to to see her and things she was not the same person and what was even creepier is all the people around you know like when the visitation stuff were on in another world and for eleven-year-old trying to figure out, okay, they're not monsters; they're just different, and they talk differently, and they're saying things that you're trying to keep up with. So that messed with me. Didn't take long to discover Poe after that, and all the, you know, she if she leaves me, I'm going to, you know, the knife will plunge, and I, you know, started writing poems like that. And eventually, my mother, thank God, got out, but you know, they put her on Thorazine, so she was just like this through the teenage years. Um, but that had a you know incredible impact as well, of course, my father loving films. And he wasn't a horror fan, but he liked the idea that there was something I was that passionate about. Um, so that, but he did take me to go see Peter Lorre dead in his coffin. <laughs> he did a movie called Casbah that Peter Lorre was in. And so when Peter Lorre passed away, he said, you wanna go down and see Peter Lorre? How are you gonna do that? Because Beast With Five Fingers, one of my favorite movies too, that was on TV. So you know we walk into this room at Pierce Brothers Mortuary, and there lies you know Peter Laurie, you know, and just sitting there having that sort of thing is you know is dark for most people. Oh, you're kidding! You know you took your kid to that, but I love that. Now my crypt, the crypt that I bought, you know, for my third act, um, which has the instructions on it at at the Hollywood Forever Mortuary, literally four feet on the other side of me is Peter Laurie. So. It just, I didn't pick it because he was there. It just was one of those things that just happened to happen. Well, now that we've talked about
0: uh, your inspiration for making horror films and the script that you wrote for Jason Never Dies, I just wanted to ask you, what projects are you working on now? Is it
1: touring with the Sloths or something else? Well, the Sloths were, we were on a tour when COVID hit. So everything stopped of course. And, you know, we have half an album that we were going to, you know, try to do the other songs so we could release a second album. And the band just kind of went into after COVID, you know, like some of the other guys kind of joined other bands. Nobody was like doing the big time. It was all kind of just, like local bands and stuff. So, uh, th- three weeks ago, I guess it's been now, uh, three weeks ago, this Sunday, Sunday, um, The Whiskey-A-Go-Go, you know, obviously the mega club of all time, asked us to open for Love, the band Love. And Love, they have a plaque on the wall of the Whiskey. I mean, they helped start that whole place. So it was an incredible honor. And they said, you know, we want the Sloths, you know, to to open for us. So we gathered the boys. Some One of them flew in from Philadelphia. You know, another guy couldn't really stand, had to sit through the whole thing. But, you know, we gave them as hard a rock and roll show as we possibly could doing songs from the mid 60s when we were actually up there doing that, you know, because I said no originals anymore for this show. Let's just say, here's what we looked like when we were 15 and 16 doing these songs. So now we're kind of figuring out, do we want to keep going? You know, what's going to happen here? Um, because we can't have everybody. We'd have to you know, recruit some new people. So that's, that's happening. Meanwhile, I have been writing and storyboarding a piece that is probably the thing I'm most excited about because I'm going all the way back to my chaplain influences, writing something that I'm gonna direct and I'm also gonna star in. And it's like, who wants a face like this? For this character, it's gonna work. I have to do this in such a way that nobody else really can play this role in the same way as i could with my particular background and understanding of horror but he if it works if we get that far it could be another franchise it could be another monster type that's you know not freddie not jason you know not even the terrifier but it's it's something where you're going to be on one on one hand intrigued and on the other hand, kind of, there's a weird spirituality that allows this guy to do what he's doing. That's very real. So I've put a lot of elements into this thing. You know, if you could see what I'm looking at right now are storyboards and all the stuff that I have uh, Walter Figueroa do for me uh, in the East. And he did a lot of the sketches. If you saw the um, supplemental stuff on the the big box set of Friday the 13th you know, things for Jason never dies. So we've been fashioning this project to do as a short film first as a kind of a, I don't know what the intent of content or something. I can't remember what they call it, but it's, you know, here's what it looks like in the shortest form. That's been a nightmare to write because I've, I think like this, you know, and this is like do it in 10 minutes. So that we're going to do sometime, hopefully in the next few months. Um, So that'll be the thing that play festivals horror festivals and things then hopefully it goes the next step because you know as i gain years um you know i become more and more unviable as a choice so i have to do something and play the stallone card of nobody's gonna do this but me you know we want it i do it you know and that's kind of what i have to do with this because yeah there's a thousand other actors that could play it but they wouldn't have the same history that I've had and the same kind of skill set from things that I've done. So I hopefully made some suspense for somebody out there. I like how you did that cameo
0: in date with an angel as the owlish looking man.
1: <laughs> you know who that was supposed to be? Kevin Klein. Kevin Klein was down on set with Phoebe and you know, they weren't married, of course, they were just dating. And I asked Kevin, would you, like getting set on fire. I mean, safely, you know, in a, in a church. Yeah, I'll do it. You know, and then he gets a fish called Wanda. And so he has to leave and go, you know, to go do that movie. He did his part and stuff and came back. We were still shooting date with an angel. And he said, whatever happened to that part? You know, I said, well, I had to shoot it and I jumped in and got set on fire. So, you know, it just <laughs> it took over. What a coup that would have been, you know, to have that cameo in there.
0: Well, I think that's a good place to wrap this up. We're running out of time. So I want to say thank you very much for doing this interview with me, Tom. Um, Very insightful, very honored to have you as a guest. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate that. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.